Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello and welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer, and I'm so happy to have back behind the glass today, Sandra, the intern. Sandra, welcome back to the Power Hour. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be back. So what have you been doing the last few weeks? What have we missed in Sandra's life? Gun shooting? Unfortunately, I don't have enough time to you do that. You know, you got us all excited about all this gun shooting you are. You got us thinking you were Annie Oakley, and I haven't heard any gun shooting stories. Oh, man. <laughs> I I mean, I'm trying to figure out something with my boyfriend to go to the range soon. Okay. But honestly, I can't even make promises about that because I've just been so busy these days. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. I know everyone's busy. Yeah. But if you do get some gun shooting, then you got to tell us about it. Okay. Because this will not be your last podcast. Okay. Sounds I promise good. you. Or I can't promise you. I can't make promises I can't keep. But I hope that mm-hmm. it's not your last podcast because you've done a great job with it. I've been doing, um, it's that time of year where I start plant, putting things in the ground like seeds and trees that are too early. So that's what I've been doing since we last talked, planting different things and trying to figure out how to make them grow when it's too mm-hmm. cold. So anyway, that's my life. What do you like planting? We planted cold weather. I like planting everything. Oh, okay. But we did like beets, spinach, lettuce, um, arugula, things like that. So like and then I vegetables. Plant, yes. Yeah. And I planted... An apple tree, three cherry trees, and that's kind of where we are right now hmm. with our planting. That's a lot, <laughs> I would say. It's not that much. But anyway, that's enough about all that. Mm-hmm. People are tuning in to hear about energy policy stuff. So let, let's get to that. But first, we need to do our housekeeping. Remind everyone that our email address is thepowerhour at heritage.org. That's thepowerhour at heritage.org. So Send us an email, folks. I want to hear from you. I want to hear if we're doing a good job, a bad job, what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing. Let us know because we will respond. We will do shows based on you know the feedback we get. And I'm going to give you a little hint. We have a special, it, within the context of this email that I ask people to send, mm-hmm. we have a special podcast coming up. So wait till next week. It's going to be exciting. I promise you that. <laughs> All right. So that. Now, John's still not back. So, and his job is to tell people where to find this podcast. So I'll do that. I will tell people where to find it. You can find it wherever you find your podcast, Spotify, iTunes. We are on the Herded Heritage feed. You go to the Herded Heritage feed and you can type in the Power Hour, Jack Spencer, the Power Hour, any combination of the Heritage Foundation, Jack Spencer, the Power Hour, all of those things where you get your podcast, you will do it. But what you really need to do is just hit subscribe. That way you don't have to go through any of that stuff. It just pops in there whenever, whenever we publish a new one, which is... Once a week. Now to why we are here today. We, Sandra, are going to talk about electric vehicles. Good old EVs. Now, it seems to me, at the most basic level, the purpose of any energy policy should be to make sure that Americans have access to the energy resources that they need to run their businesses and to run their lives. Yep. Of course, there are subsets of that broader objective. Sandra, what do you want out of your energy policy? What are you looking for? Cheaper, more... Available, 
cleaner is nice, but that shouldn't be the main priority. My own opinion. You, your, you are, your opinion is my opinion. We want, <laughs> we want clean energy. We want affordable energy. We don't want to be dependent on unreliable partners, much less adversaries for energy. Do you agree with that stuff? We want yeah. choice. We should be able to choose what kinds of energy we use and what sort of products we use to put that energy in. This is America, after all. Those That's are all true. things that are reasonable. We talked a lot here at the Power Hour about how Biden's energy policies seem to emanate from some bizarro world if our goal is clean, affordable, and reliable energy. But if there were a contest where the most backward, anti-consumer, anti-security, cost-inflating, liberty-taking, special interest-serving, and might I say authoritarian policy, then Biden's EV mandate would surely win. It's horrendous. It forces us to buy things we don't want, transfer wealth from the poor to the rich. It creates security risk risks. The list goes on and on. Unfortunately, Sandra, I'm not an expert on this. I sure wish we had someone that could talk us through the issue. That would be pretty nice. Well, guess what? What's that? We just happen to have someone, not just someone, but someone who knows this issue better than anyone. She publishes on the topic routinely, has been on just about every radio station and television show discussing it, and is the go-to person for folks on Capitol Hill who need to learn more about it. She has held senior positions in the administration of Reagan, both Bushes, Donald Trump. She's been chief economists in those different agencies. She's been chiefs of staff in those different agencies. She's learned economics at Oxford. Now, here's one. She writes books like Drake Drops Hits. That means she writes a lot of them, and they're really, really good. And most important of all, she is currently the director of the Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment here at the Heritage Foundation. In other words, she's my boss. I present to the Power Hour audience, Miss Diana Birchcott-Roth. Diana, welcome to the Power Hour. Thank you so much, Jack. It is such an honor to be on with you on the Power Hour. It is great to have you. Now, I need to get something out of the way here real quick. Before we get into the conversation, I need to pull the curtain back just a little bit for the audience. Here at Heritage, we have something that's called the one voice policy. That means that we speak with, a, with an organizational voice. We work within the organization where we're going to be on an issue before we go public with that position. Now, Diana has established with all of us our position on EVs, and that's going to be what we discuss here today. However, there are some things on the margin a little bit that we disagree with a, just a little bit. And so while I assure you all that I agree with everything Diana says today, I might be playing a little bit of the devil's advocate here and there. In other words, despite my better judgment, I'm sort of kind of debating my boss. <laughs> so I hope you all enjoy my foray into these dangerous shark-infested waters. Now, Diana, let's get to it. First of all, Jack, I want to say that I welcome civil debate. Yes. The only way we're going to get to the truth and to the right answer is by having people who have different opinions and expressing them and then hashing those out. Because I'm not always right. You're not always right. We can discuss and let the audience decide. We yeah. have a great power, our audience, and we want them to hear both sides of the issue and make up their own minds because they do have minds. That's right. And the truth is, I think that we probably mostly agree on most things. But just for fun, there are a couple of things where we might disagree on. I don't know if we do or not, but I wanted to create the suspense for, for our conversation. Absolutely. And, you know, I've been your boss for about a year and a half. This is the first time you've invited me on a power hour, and I don't want to blow it. <laughs> so I'm going to be really nice to you in the hopes that sometime in the future I might get invited back again. Well, I, I, I hope after this you want to come back because you're, always, you, you're certainly always welcome. I'm glad that you're finally here to discuss this important issue. Now, before we get into it, 
If you don't mind, I mean, we walked through a little bit of what you've done professionally. Our, I'd like to introduce our audience to our guests a little bit. Could you just tell us a little bit about your journey, how you got into public policy, and some highlights of, of what you've done? Because it's, it, it is truly so impressive. But really, I want, I want to also hear about what got you into policy and what makes you, you. Well, I got into public policy because my friend Arlene Holland at the Reagan Council of Economic Advisors called me in May of 1986. And she said, Diana, we have an unexpected opening. Our junior tax economist has quit. Can you come right away and help us out? Well, first I said no, because it would have been making a pay cut. And then after a week, I thought, no, I got to do this. (laughs) And I called her back and said, Arlene, I would like to do it. So that's how I got into public policy. And it changed my whole life. I worked at the Reagan Council of Economic Advisors. Then I was Deputy Executive Secretary for Domestic Policy in the George H.W. Bush administration. I was Chief of Staff at the Council of Economic Advisors in the George W. Bush administration. And then I was Chief Economist for a bunch of other agencies like the Labor Department, Transportation Department, and the equivalent at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. And I think that background is important for this conversation because I think, you know, the perception of the economist is often left behind when it comes to energy. And it shouldn't be. Energy should, I would argue, and it always has been here at Heritage or has primarily been here at Heritage, a question of economics. I mean, energy is fuel for economic activity. And too often, the economics of energy are put to the side. And that's what's interesting about this EV issue is that there's a strong economics component for sure, but there are also some of these other things. And your experience in all these agencies, undergirded by your economics training and background, I think makes you really the perfect person to to talk about this. So, Well, I also teach transportation economics and economics of supply chain at George Washington University. And I studied a transportation program at the National Bureau of Economic Research for that very reason. Because in most fields, like take uh, iPhones, I'm holding one up right here, and Apple decides thinks about how much Jack Spencer is going to pay for an iPhone before it rolls out a new iPhone. But with transportation and many energy kinds of things, there's no thought to how much Jack Spencer is going to want to pay to go high-speed rail from San Francisco to L.A. They just say, we need high-speed rail because Japan and China have high-speed rail. They don't think about whether it's going to be profitable or not. And it's the same with energy. They say, well, we need solar and wind because maybe it's good for the environment. Or maybe it isn't. But they don't think it's just going to raise people's electricity prices, which is really important. And the same with EVs. They say we need EVs because they're emissions-free. Well, they're not emissions-free, and they don't necessarily help the environment, and they're more expensive than a lot of people can afford. In fact, if you look at these vehicles around construction sites, they're mostly beat-up pickup trucks. If we force those construction workers to be buying EVs, or we take away the option of the inexpensive pickup truck, these people are not going to have any way to get to work. They're going to lose their jobs or their ability to have jobs outside walking distance and public transit area. So it's really important to look at the economics of energy and the economics of transportation. Yeah, that last point that you made is an important one. There's reams of academic research, and I don't know why the Biden administration hasn't read it, that shows that having access to an automobile is one of the key components of lifting people up out of poverty, both in rural and, interestingly, urban communities. And for them, with all of their talk of equity and social justice and environmental justice, for so many of their policies, this one specifically, to 
hinder what they claim to be their objectives is just mind-blowing. What's going on with EVs? Walk us through sort of the horizon of, of what we're facing right now. Well, right now, about 7% of new vehicles sold are electric, and I'm fully in favor of anyone who wants an electric vehicle to buy an electric vehicle. You know, I'm pro-choice. I think people should be able to buy an electric vehicle, a gasoline-powered vehicle, or a hybrid. They should be allowed to buy an electric stove, a natural gas stove, a dishwasher that uses a lot of water, or a dishwasher that uses a little water. But some people think that Americans should only buy EVs, And the Environmental Protection Agency and the Transportation Department have come out with regulations that would require automobile companies to sell, in terms of their new vehicles, 60% EVs in 2030 and 66% by 2032. These are proposed rules, and they're about to bring out the final. And we'll have to see what the final is like. But this is their idea, that Americans should be forced to drive EVs whether they like it or not. Now, the Europeans are a step behind us or a step ahead of us, depending on how you look at it. They've passed laws to say that all vehicles sold should be electric by 2035. California has passed a similar law, but Congress has not passed such a law, and it would not pass such a law because it would be hugely unpopular. That's why President Biden is doing it through regulation, because he cannot get a law through Congress. And this is a tactic that Biden, but also Obama before him, used to put all sorts of things in place because there is no actual underlying legislative statute that allows them to regulate CO2, for example. But they use the Clean Air Act to do that. And they use the Energy Policy and Conservation Act to do these things. You see, whenever people, conservatives will often talk about the administrative state and liberals like to make fun of them, like, oh, the administrative state is this made up boogeyman. No, it's not. This is literally what we mean by that. It's whenever these politicians use the bureaucracy in ways that was it was never intended. And this is a perfect example of that. It really is. And Americans are buying non-plug-in hybrids in large quantities, even though you don't get a tax credit for that. But there's four big disadvantages of the traditional plug-in battery-powered EV. And it's easy for our listeners to remember because they all begin with C. So the first is cost. These are more expensive and many people can't afford them. The second is convenience. Imagine if you're driving on vacation and you have a bunch of screaming kids in your car. Do you really want to have to stop for one and a half hours or two hours every three or four hours to recharge your battery? No, you don't. And it could be more if other people are ahead of you in line. The third is climate. In cold areas, batteries lose 20 to 40 percent of their charge. And as we've seen from recent scenes in Illinois, sometimes the charging stations freeze up also. So people in Chicago were left in lines with their electric vehicles just going dead and the charging stations not working. And the fourth is China. We would be dependent on China for electric vehicles because China produces 80% of the globe's electric batteries and a large part of the components and has control over 60% of the critical minerals that go into the batteries. And it's really extraordinary that some environmentalists who are against mining in the United States because they say it's destructive, they don't mind that you have to move 500,000 pounds of earth to get the critical minerals for one battery. It's immensely environmentally destructive. And it doesn't necessarily reduce emissions 
because you have to charge your EV battery. If you were charging it with nuclear power or solar and wind, yes, it would be emissions-free, but we don't have that much on the grid right now. As you know very well, Jack, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, about 20% of our electricity generated is from nuclear. About 6% is from wind and solar. And most of the marginal unit of electricity is generated by coal and then natural gas. Because you use all your wind and solar, your nuclear, your natural gas, then you get down to coal. So these vehicles use a lot of emissions. They generate emissions. They generate emissions when you charge them up using the electrical grid. Yeah. One of the points that I think people often miss is you pointed out the four C's, which are all I agree with completely. The thing is, the market would sort those things out. The China, maybe not so much. There needs to be some. But the cost, convenience, and climate, if the government would get out of the way, there probably is enough demand for EVs that you would have a smaller number of firms competing for that business, resolving these issues to grow their market share. If government would get out of the way and allow this to happen organically, they would be far more successful over the long term if their objective is to get EVs out there. Well, the market has sorted itself out, and it's sorted itself out in that EVs right now are a product for upper-income households who use them as a second car. And you can walk uh, along the streets of um, Los Angeles uh, in suburbs there. You can see that when there's an electric car in the driveway, there's often a minivan or an SUV. So people use them to get around town. They can charge them overnight in their houses. And then if they want to go on a long trip, say to Lake Tahoe, then they take uh, their non-electric vehicle. They take their SUV or their minivan. So yes, the market is sorting itself out, but the market hasn't sorted itself out to have 60% of new vehicles be electric vehicle sales by 2032. That's pushing it. And even if the government took away all the regulations and let the market take care of itself, it would not get to that level of EV sales because they're more expensive, they're inconvenient, they don't work in cold climates. And if you don't like China, I'll add another C, which is children. You can't fit a whole bunch of kids in them. And when you stop to recharge, the kids scream. Having six kids myself, I can, <laughs> I can attest to that. I agree with everything you just said. I, I would just say, though, I'm advocating getting to 60% EVs. But the only chance you have to get there in a reasonable way is for market forces to drive the technology and for someone to come up with a way to make a better EV. Like, that's the only way you get there without creating absolute chaos. Not that I'm saying we would, that would happen, but like, you can't get there by government mandating things. Well, the market is driving it. And surprisingly enough, these non plug in hybrids for which there is no tax credit. There's a tax credit for the plug-in hybrids. There's a tax credit for the plug-in pure battery part. There's no tax credit for the non-plug-in hybrid, where you have a larger battery, and this battery is charged through the operation of your engine and the braking system. Mm -hmm. Those are really taking off. There are companies that have stopped making their vehicles in pure gasoline-powered version. They're only making them in non-plug-in hybrids because people love them. You get a great gas mileage. You don't have to stop to recharge. You don't even know that it's a hybrid. In fact, someone from Mercedes was telling me 
that practically all their vehicles are non-plug-in hybrids, mm -hmm. but they don't tell their customers <laughs> because their customers don't want to buy hybrids. Mm -hmm. They're very conservative, and if they knew it was a hybrid, they wouldn't buy it. That's but hilarious. But they love the bigger gas mileage, and they love the vehicles, and they can only tell if they open the hood and see the bigger battery. Yeah. Well, I was going to buy a Mercedes, but I guess not now. No, I wasn't going to buy one. All right. Um, you just wrote a piece on foxnews.com, and I'd like to talk about that a little bit. And we will link to it um, in the, the show notes so that people can read it. Tell us about the piece, and then let's talk about some Because in that, there are little things that, that I will nitpick, and you can tell me why my nitpicks are ridiculous. Well, I'm really concerned about the effect that Chinese EVs are going to have on the U.S. market. And that's because Chinese EVs have been expanding globally. Chinese companies such as BYD, NIO, Cherry, Geely, and Great Wall have turned into top global vehicle exports. And they're selling very well in Latin America and Europe. So BYD is hoping to undercut German car manufacturers with its $11,500 Seagull car. It's $33,000 Dolphins, one of the cheapest new cars in the UK. And if it were a level playing field, I would say, fine. But China subsidizes labor, energy, and capital. So I would say that they are unfairly undercutting our market. Second, if we were concerned about a spy balloon going overhead, which we were concerned last summer, and our military shot it down over Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, we should be equally concerned about these vehicles going around our streets, sending telematics back to the Chinese Communist Party. Because private companies here, Jack, are not like private companies in China. China is like one big family, and the Chinese Communist Party has a stake and controls all major companies, including auto companies. So any telematics that Chinese car companies receive are also shared by the Chinese Communist Party. And if people buy them with auto loans here, then that means that the Chinese Communist Party has information on credit ratings, credit cards, home mortgage, bank accounts, social security numbers. And China is not our friend, and that's not information that I believe the Chinese Communist Party should have. So there's the national security aspect. And the third is having the Chinese Communist Party have control over our vehicles. As many of us know, GM's OnStar has a program where it can slow or disable the vehicle or stop the vehicle if it's stolen. So you sign up with OnStar, your vehicle gets stolen, you call OnStar, you report your vehicle stolen, and it stops it. So if GM has the technology, these Chinese car companies also have the technology. And do we really want to give the Chinese Communist Party the power to just halt Chinese-made vehicles in the United States if, say, China invades Taiwan and we want to retaliate? I think the answer is no. So for national security reasons... Uh, and uh, other reasons, then I think that we want to ban the sale of Chinese EVs in the United States, not just coming directly from China, but also coming through Mexico, through a new North American free trade agreement. So, Diana Furchcott Roth, why should you be able to tell me how I can spend my money? You laid out the risks 
I'm a grown man. If I care, why can't I decide for myself if whether or not the Chinese can collect my data? Well, that's a great question, Jack. And it comes down to the concept of public goods. Our national defense is a public good. That's why the Federal Communications Commission banned technology from Huawei and ZTE from our devices because they knew that the Chinese, when these devices were in Ethiopia, were sending back information to China. So they knew spying was going on with Huawei and ZTE, and they were banned. So there's a precedent for this. It's a national security risk, and national security is a public good. A public good meaning that it's the responsibility of the government to... uh, to have it, to provide it for anybody, and you can't provide it for one person without providing it for everybody, just like street lighting. It's part of our national defense system. I hear what you're saying, and I would agree that that justifies government agencies, government contractors, people who are engaged in some way in inefficient business. I don't, I don't understand how me buying a cheap Chinese electric vehicle threatens national security. Because you could be driving close to a military base. I understand you live in Virginia. There's a lot of military bases in Virginia. You could be driving near a power plant, near an electric utility. All these can send signals out that the EV can capture and send back to China. But let me ask you a question, Jack, even though you're the host. Were you concerned about the Chinese spy balloon going overhead from Alaska over Montana and Wyoming Uh, to South Carolina? Or did you think, well, that's just fine? It's fine for the Chinese to spy on us with a balloon and pick up communications. Were you worried about that? Was I worried? I wasn't worried about it. I think it's something that happens. And it's something that the media found out about this time and made a big deal about it. I also think it's something that we should work to prevent and understand is happening and mitigate against. Correct. So just as we want to mitigate against the spy balloons, we also want to mitigate against these vehicles, which are just computers on wheels that can send back more detailed data to China than the spy balloon was sending back. So having the vehicles on our streets is like having many, many more spy balloons overhead, except they can send back more detailed information and they are even greater national security risk. If that's the case, then, I guess I don't understand where it all stops, because Chinese vehicles, EVs are one thing, something that there aren't very many of, people aren't interested in electric vehicles, really. I doubt that they're even interested in cheap Chinese ones. So I don't know how much market penetration you would get. But well, if, if I our could fear... Just say one thing about yeah. that... Right now, they're not interested in EVs because they're very expensive. They cost more, they're inconvenient, they don't work in cold climates, and they're not family-friendly. So these are reasons that people don't like them. Let's leave the Chinese part aside. But say China was selling its $11,500 Seagull here that it hopes to sell in Germany. So that's a low-cost vehicle. It's much less expensive than many, many other cars. It's probably the least expensive new car that anyone could buy. Then there would be more of a market demand for it. Even though this $11,500 isn't a real price, it's subsidized in terms of labor, energy, and capital by the Chinese Communist Party. Isn't there some technical process that we can, that we put things through in order to ensure they don't have embedded in them 
this sort of thing. And this is what I was getting at. If what you just described is a problem, it's a problem everywhere. It has to be pervasive because it's not just cars that could collect this data. It's everything. And it's not just China who can do it. Everyone spies on everyone. So it it seems to me that identifying Chinese EVs as the problem, it's the same mistake I see government making all the time, which is it identifies the thing that it has some political saliency and identifies as solving that, uh, addressing that as solving the problem when the problem is much broader and wider than that one thing. And it's often the case that that one thing wasn't the problem to begin with. There's some other thing that they're getting to. Well, and, in theory, and, yeah, you're absolutely right. If the Iranians were making EVs and wanted to sell them to us or the Russians, I would also want to ban the Iranian-made EVs and the Russian-made EVs. But right now, China is the global leader in EVs. It's taking over in Europe. It's taking over in Latin America. Its cars are pushing out our brands in China. You know, the Chinese Communist Party said, yes, we will let our people buy Fords, GMs, Jeeps, but you have to come and make them in China. So our companies set up factories in China. Well, right now, the Chinese in China are undercutting those. So now our companies are making the Chinese vehicles, the vehicles, and then they're exporting them back here. So our our factories shifted to China for the Chinese market, and now they're going to be used to service other markets abroad that were previously serviced by factories here in the United States. So China is a global leader in that. We've already banned Huawei technology and ZTE. So on the same rationale, I would say we should be banning these Chinese-made EVs, whether they are imported into the United States directly from China or through Mexico. Okay, fair enough. I get you. I agree with what you're saying. Where I get caught up is I don't see the end of it. I just see if the Chinese can use EVs to collect this data, then any country can use almost any mobile device of whatever kind, of which there are thousands, to do the same sort of thing. And so I'd rather to have some technical specification that is required to be met for things to be imported. Well, a lot of these devices are smaller. So there's Samsung phones, for example, but they cannot collect as much uh, as an EV can because an EV has a giant computer inside. Uh, It goes all over. It's a giant computer on wheels. So it has greater collecting capability than some of these smaller mobile devices. I have not suggested banning German-made, French-made, you know, Italian-made cars. I'm only suggesting banning these Chinese EVs. Furthermore, the Chinese Communist Party is undercutting us on costs, which I believe is contrary to WTO regulations. But you should have our colleague Andrew Hale on the podcast to talk about whether this is contrary to WTO, World Trade Organization regulations, because he's the real expert on that. Let's talk about that for a moment. You point out in your piece and in our discussion that they subsidize capital and labor. And we subsidize, for lack of a better term, I'm not going to use this word since you're my boss and it would be inappropriate. That's okay. I'm just, I was just, yeah. We subsidize so much of our EVs. So much of our economy is subsidized. Yeah. I feel like using, that's not a legitimate argument. In the, So the national security, one, I, I, I buy what you're selling. The slave labor argument is also, obviously, we shouldn't allow the imports of anything, whether it's China or elsewhere, that uses slave labor. I'm with you on that. But this idea that they have less environmental regulation or lower, so-called lower labor standards or whatever, and that allows them to be more competitive, that to me just seems like they've made different choices and 
than ones that I would wish we would make in order to be more competitive. That's not really undercutting. That's just competing. Well, there's a whole uh, international trade discussion over dumping, what dumping is, whether it should be allowed. But I think a more important reason to ban them is that they're undercutting U.S. EV incentives. The Inflation Reduction Act put in place about a trillion dollars worth of incentives because they wanted the United States to develop its own EV and battery industry. And that was the intent of Congress. And there's no point in having all these tax credits if Chinese EVs are just going to come and undercut our domestic companies. Now, you and I agree that we should not be having these subsidies at all. We shouldn't even be having subsidies to buy any kind of electric vehicle. We shouldn't have a subsidy for the factory. We shouldn't be having subsidies for the batteries. But given Congress did put in place these, and it was the intent of our legislators that we develop this domestic capability, it's undercutting congressional intent to have Chinese EVs in the United States. Now, this one I totally disagree with you on. (laughs) We both agree that Americans... It doesn't matter what we, the the statistics show that Americans aren't really interested in EVs. And to the extent that people are buying EVs, they are policy dependent, whether that's through tax subsidies of some kind or a mandate or whatever. And to me, it's extraordinarily dangerous to allow an American economic sector to grow that is policy dependent, because what inevitably will happen there's a million examples. You have overinvestment in that thing. One thing ultimately happens is it collapses. It's just a matter of how long you keep funneling the taxpayer money into it to keep it from collapsing. Why not? Why don't we want to undermine that? Why not put that burden on China? Notwithstanding the national security argument, which I, I was just trying to instigate a discussion on that. But on this one, I do disagree. I think that let China ruin their manufacturing by building a bunch of goofy EVs that are policy dependent. Well, I do, I do agree with you that we shouldn't have these subsidies. I'm not sure that the fundamental point that Americans are not interested in EVs is true. They're not interested in EVs at the current price. Say they were $10,000, then people would think, well, I'll just get an EV and use it just to go to the grocery store. I'll use it for in-town uh, pickups for my kids. I'll just use it in town. So they might be interested if they cost $10,000. Plus, if EPA and DOT regulations went through that said that 60% of new car sales had to be electric by 2030. So there is a, there is a price point at which Americans would be interested in EVs. And I'm concerned that the Chinese would have that price point subsidized. However, one of our colleagues, a very eminent attorney, has said that in terms of blocking Chinese EVs, the best legal argument was that Congress has put in place these tax incentives and that having Chinese EVs would undercut those tax incentives. So this is a lawyer speaking, not an economist. He's drafted legislation. You can even have him on your podcast to discuss. That, That apparently is a valid legal reason for banning I'm not questioning the legality of it. Not not at all. I I totally agree with the legality of it. What I disagree with is whether or not it's good policy. Like, I'm just from the perspective, I want to undercut the effectiveness of IRA subsidies, and I would rather China pay the price for that by malallocation of capital than 
our companies do that. And I think that that will be, maybe I'm wrong, but I have a real fear that that will occur not just within the EV industry, but the green industry writ large. And we already see that. We see like in Michigan and some other states where there's this increase in so-called green manufacturing, but it's all policy and subsidy dependent. I think that it's going to end really badly. So that's that's the only point I make on that. So there's two questions. First of all, what's a good policy and how can we get it changed? I think it's a good policy to ban Chinese EVs on national security grounds, but it might be hard to get a law through. So how to get them banned on national security grounds could be a law that points at the tax incentives we've put in place and how we don't want to undercut them. I I wish we could also ban ban the domestic production of them as well. Let's ban the import and the domestic production. I'm I'm kidding. I just no. I'm sure that just like me, uh, Jack, you're pro-choice. Do you think people should be able to buy an EV or a gasoline-powered vehicle, a gas-powered stove, or an electric stove? I believe in freedom of choice when it comes to buying products. Here's a point that I wanted to bring up with you that I think gets missed a lot in this discussion. And you didn't touch on it in your piece. I'm not saying that you don't agree with it. I just It's a point that I want to have a quick discussion with you about. We talk a lot about China collecting data on us. And I get that we don't want that, although I think it should be my choice. But I hear what you're saying. We don't talk enough about the threat of our own government collecting data on us. And that's something that I think should be equally concerning. In fact, personally, I'm more concerned about that because my government has jurisdiction over me. My government can put me in jail, take away my money, and even legally execute me if I don't comply with certain things. China can't do any of that stuff to me. Shouldn't we be concerned about our own government using this, these technologies to collect data? And I wish there could be, I wish the policy would be no one, no car company who sells in the U.S., can allow any government to collect data on private citizens. Well, I certainly believe that our government shouldn't be collecting all this data, but one main reason is that China hacks our government. (laughs) So our government collects the data, like the Office of Personnel Management. All my records were hacked by the Chinese government taking them. They gave me free ID protection, but still the the Chinese government has all my data. So, yes, it is very dangerous, and there are ways of getting around it, but it's difficult. For example, you could just pay cash or write a check if you buy a vehicle. You could buy a used vehicle rather than a new one and just pay cash for it. Uh, But, yes, I agree, especially medical data. There are a lot of people who are against the government collecting medical data, can be held against them in the future, and our government does that with the Affordable Care Act. So, yes. Gun data is a big one. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that, look, we're almost on our hour. And I agree with you, actually, that we should be banning most Chinese vehicles, or at least I think that there should be a process that a stricter process that needs to be adhered to before Chinese vehicles can be brought into the United States. That's probably where I'm at. I get antsy when bureaucrats, not that you're one, start telling me what I can do with anything. When bureaucrats start telling me how to spend the fruits of my labor, I get skeptical. And so I I really appreciate you coming in here and entertaining my dumb questions because I thought you did a great job of answering them and helping me and maybe some of my listeners who maybe agree agree or disagree with me, but get a better understanding, um, a more in-depth and textured understanding of why this is a real issue and what we what we need to do about it. So thank you so much. Well, thanks so much for having me on, Jack. I really appreciate it, and it's great to be on the podcast. 
thank you to everyone who took some time out of your day to listen to the Power Hour. And please, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell your friends, family, and colleagues to check us out. And email us at thepowerhour at heritage.org. I'm begging you. Let me know what you think. Do you want to hear Diana again? Should it be another year and a half before Diana gets on here? I bet you say no, but let me know. I'll give you what you want. Now, before we end, Diana, is there anything that I missed or anything that you'd like to add? Do you have anything coming up? And where do people find you? Like, are you on Twitter or X? What do you got going on? Well, I'd like to add that the EVs present a national security concern, but that our listeners should not worry about buying toys from Walmart that are made in China or clothes that are made in China. You're absolutely right about those. They can get to me through the Heritage website or through my own website, dianafr.com. That's www.dianafr.com. And I'm looking forward to writing about more of these issues coming up next Very good. Now, Sandra, do you have any final words? Do you have any bones to pick with my boss? No. I mean, you said everything that I believe is really important that everybody knows. I mean, I'm kind of terrified now of electric cars just a little tiny bit, but I'm sure everything will be okay. (laughs) So, So there you go, folks. Sandra picked sides and she came down. With my boss, Diana Furchcott Roth. Remember to email us at thepowerhour at heritage.org. Thank you, Sandra. Diana, thank you very much for being a guest. And most importantly, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>